I was telling him what I would be thinking about if I was still in my cycle of addiction. And we were at breakfast at like six, six 15 in the morning. And, uh, I was telling him, I'm like, here's what I'd be thinking. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm thinking about the gas stations that I haven't hit up recently in this area. I'm in a different part of town, so I won't be judged by the clerk when I'm checking out. I mean, you're, you're literally cycling stores where you, where you're buying stuff to make it seem like you're not consuming as much as you are. Like there are times I'd be, I'd be checking out and I'm like, God, I hope that guy's not there right now. And I'd see him walking in and I'm like, dang it. Okay. Gotta be fast. And like like no eye contact. Jeez. It's, it's terrible. It was, it was absolute hell. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Mountain Tough Podcast. We are so stoked that you are here diving into these episodes week after week. It is our goal to bring you inspiring, inspirational guests on this show that help you transform your life, live that abundant life, and take your physical and mental mindset to a whole new level. As always, if you are new to this show and you haven't done so already, if you could take a second and leave us a review, those mean so much to us here at Mountain Tough. We love seeing those come through on these episodes about these guests. So you can leave a review on the podcast store of your choice, but that would mean a ton to us, and we appreciate seeing those always when they're coming through, and it helps get these episodes out to more folks as well. Diving into the lab, in the lab in Bozeman with Mountain Tough, there is a ton going on right now. So it is really cool to see some new content that has hit the app this month. The One of the coolest programs that is in the app is a couple different micro programs were launched in the month of November, two that I wanted to focus on before we dive into today's guest. One is a new micro series of content from Phil Cornerchuk. Phil is our director of mindset here at Mountain Tough. And Phil has launched a mini series to help you set up some structure to accomplish your goals going into 2024. So he has his mindset 1.0 curriculum and his 2.0 curriculum that are going to help you build that mental toughness and take that mental toughness to a whole new level. But his new course is a mini series that's going to talk a lot more about goal setting habits and really dive into why you have some goals that you're just not getting done, that you're procrastinating on, that you've been thinking about for years that keep falling off the table to that back burner. So if you're struggling on reaching your vision and your dreams and you need a little bit of assistance in that area, you're definitely going to want to check out Phil's new course. Secondly, we launched a mini series with Brian Van Epps this month as well. Brian is our director of spiritual development here at Mountain Tough, and Brian released a phenomenal series that many Mountain Toughers have gone through earlier this year on fatherhood, what it takes to be a Mountain Tough father. His newest series ties right into that. His newest series is on marriage. So his fatherhood series changed a lot of lives. The marriage series will be no different. So if you have some time driving into work, driving home from work, 
the mini series can be digested just like a podcast. So on your way in this month to the office, definitely take out, take a, some time and dive into either Phil or Brian's new mini series. Those are both phenomenal pieces of content you're not going to want to miss. Then we are also ramping up big time here in the lab for Black Friday, Cyber Monday. So we're a few days out right now from Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Everyone's packing their bags, getting ready for Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is an amazing holiday, and we always do some of our biggest sales of the year for Black Friday, Cyber Monday. So the Friday after Thanksgiving is Black Friday, and we always, for the last several years, have really let the Mountain Tough community dive into the Mountain Tough lifestyle apparel on that day. It's kind of a legendary sale around here. So on Black Friday, Cyber on Black Friday, we will do the buy two, get one Mountain Tough merch. This is a very, very popular sale at Mountain Tough. A lot of community members wait all year to stock up their closet on Mountain Tough lifestyle apparel on this day. And we have a ton of new merch ready for you guys for Black Friday as well. So new shirts have come in, zip-up hoodies, new hats, new styles, new colors. And we know a lot of you use that day to get gifts for friends and family. So stay tuned for Black Friday in the lifestyle apparel department. That's going to be the best deal on our merch you're going to see in a calendar year. Secondly... We have the annual subscription sale for the Mountain Tough app on Cyber Monday. We don't do this very often, but every Cyber Monday we run one of the best deals you're going to see all year on the Mountain Tough annual. So the Mountain Tough annual on Cyber Monday will be 60% off. That's $96 a year. You can train on Mountain Tough Plus using that deal for about 26 cents a day. So you're not going to find a better option than that to dive into world-class training every day through a native app for 26 cents a day. So that's cheaper than your morning cup of coffee to be in Mountain Tough, be with the community. So if you're looking for gear, watch out for Black Friday. If you're looking to dive into Mountain Tough and the Mountain Tough subscription this year and get in the best shape of your life, not only the physical shape, but the mental shape of your life, you're going to want to take advantage of Cyber Monday. That's the Monday after Thanksgiving. You'll see all of that on mountaintough.com. Transitioning and shifting gears now to our guest today. Our guest today is Kyle Zabrowski. Now, Kyle has been a Mountain Tough family member, a Mountain Tough user. He's been training inside of the app for a year or so. This is a really, really jaw-dropping story. This is a story you're not going to want to miss. Kyle doesn't have a huge social media presence. He's not a huge influencer. But Kyle went through a crazy battle with alcoholism over the last 24 months. He actually tried to kill himself with alcohol. He went to rehab. He has pulled his life together through what he learned in rehab, through some recovery groups like Alcoholics Anonymous, and through training with the Mountain Tough community. He is now currently in active recovery. 
rebuilding his family, rebuilding his marriage, rebuilding his life. He does not skip a detail on how this alcohol addiction devastated his life and almost ended his life. So this is a story you're not going to want to miss. Stand by for my conversation with Kyle. I guess I can just jump right in. And uh, again, like, feel free to ask any questions along the way and kind of interrupt. Like, for the most part, I've been really open about this story and this journey, but um, never, never in this way. And honestly, I'm I'm not here. Um, I okay. So the weeks leading up to this, uh, I really sat down and like questioned myself, like. Not that I was going to back out of this, but what what are my motives? Mm-hmm. What am I here for? And where I've settled, and I, I even thought about it today, this morning, and just like really made sure that it was genuine. And uh, kind of what I've decided, I don't care what you guys do with this audio, with this video. I would say my one ask out of this is just give me the raw files once it's done, because I think the value of me being here right now is to do this as a gift to my son and any future kids um, that my wife and I might have, Mm -hmm. because we are at a point in our life and our journey over the last year or so and beyond where like our wounds are still really fresh. And it's easy to forget like the pain um, and the hell and the torture that came along with some of this. And so I feel like I'm at this unique point where like I'm, I'm close enough to the really painful things to remember it um, really well, but I've transformed enough and like began a new journey where it's like, I, I see what's possible. And like my eyes have been opened in a new way. And so, you know, in, in our plan for raising our children, we expect to make this, what I'm about to talk about, a normal part of conversation. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to surprise my kid with it. I, I don't want family to be surprised at all. Like I'm not hiding this anymore. Um, But it's still like, you know, by the time my son, who's two now, gets to a point where he's going to start like remembering things, by by that point, these will be scars that have healed over. And Mm -hmm. like, I can talk about them, but I don't think it will be as impactful. Whereas where I am right now is like a, it's a, it's a very real thing for me. Like I, I, I do still have, have nightmares and we can, we can get into that, but, um, like it's, I'm very close to basically what almost became the end of me. So where to start then (laughs) is, uh, you, I, I think the best place is I was looking at the calendar. I think it's actually like nine months to the day that you and I met. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, at, at the show, we were sharing a booth and, um, I think you came after like one or two days of the, of the show. And 
Um, I don't know if you remember, but our first, <laughs> our first interaction, you walked up to me and you're like, Hey, you know, I'm Dustin. I'm Kyle. Nice to meet you. What do you think of the app? And I just looked right back at you and I go, I haven't used it yet. <laughs> and I kind of got like a slow nod and then you turned away and started talking <laughs> to someone else. And I was like, man, that's not a way to kick off with someone. <laughs> I think I, I think I like wound up making up for it by the, by the end of the show. But um, <laughs> anyway, uh, one thing I don't think I'm, I'm pretty certain you didn't know is that I was a person that was clean to the edge of the cliff. Um, had no idea though. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of my story is like the mask that I put on. Um, Zach, who is a mutual friend of ours. He's my closest friend, um, in Boise and I uh, just love him to death. He had no idea. Crazy. And, um, so after the show, like in the days and weeks after the show, um, I fell into the deepest and worst cycle of my battle with alcoholism to the point that there was a two-day stretch where I was attempting to take my life mm -hmm. with alcohol. And I got lucky and I woke up on the other side and I knew that things needed to change and uh, that I really had a brush with death. And, you know, maybe it's not even a second chance because I've had near-death experiences before, but I knew something had to radically change. So May 15th, I, I decided that I had to check into an intensive inpatient rehab facility. And so um, I'm actually going to kind of step back because it's like I will we'll come to those like 28 days in rehab and uh, what that meant and what that did to me. But ultimately I had hundreds of hours and just nothing but time to reflect and, and think about my addiction and my behavior and, and really my story and like really dig into why. And where I got to was this was a, at least 12 year battle with for alcohol. Me. Yep. And I kind of came to that conclusion. So I, uh, let me do the math quick. I'm about to turn 34. So I'm 33 right now. And, uh, so 12 years, you know, 21 years old when I would call myself a true alcoholic, I started drinking, you know, relatively late to the game. I was, I was in, in the cool kids club, um, nice in high school. school. Yeah. I was a band, <laughs> uh, German nerd, German <laughs> club nerd. Uh, I did, I did sports just to kind of like maintain some semblance of like, coolness. I guess, coolness. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, so like, uh, my, my first drink I think came at 17. Um, and right from the get go, it was like, I was the one who, who was out of control. Like I could, I could never consume responsibly. Now that, that like manifested in like embarrassment and me kind of just being like, man, Kyle, you were, uh, you're kind of saying some things and doing some weird things last night. And it's like, yeah, you know, in college, it's, 
it's a day of, of like regret. And then, you know, someone tosses you the first bush light and you're like, <laughs> all right, let's, uh, let's get back on Start and, over. and going again. Yeah. So, um, the other thing with the, the like college time period was like super socially acceptable, right? It's almost, it's almost the expectation in some schools. Um, and I went to school, uh, at Iowa state, uh, in Ames, Iowa, and, uh, love, love the school, um, love the place, love the people. Uh, it holds a, a dear spot in my heart. Um, but I'll be honest, like a really bad drinking culture. It's like, part of the culture. Yeah. In a lot of American colleges. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, driving in here, I was kind of reflecting back on that time and I was actually listening to a podcast that it just so happened they were talking about alcohol and, um, it's like, man, I remember the plastic bottles of, of Hawkeye. It's like eight bucks for, you know, a, a ton of vodka. And it's, it's just, you know, reflecting back, it's, it's bad and it, it creates bad, bad habits. Um, but I had friends who graduated and got out of it. Um, but what I, what I experienced was like during the, the rough part of the winter, you know, where the sun goes down early and, and there's, it's cold, it's windy very windy in Ames. Mm -hmm. Um, it's nothing much to do. So it's like all of a sudden you're starting to drink at four, four thirty, and, um, just kind of like this creation of bad habits. So one of the things that I learned while in rehab was like, what's the equation for alcoholism? So I'm, I'm an engineer. Um, so like kind of think that way, but, you um, gotta, you, you know, they break it down. Yeah. And, and they, they talked, um, Oh, by the way, I, I think it's totally worth saying, um, sorry for the abrupt pause, but like I'm early in my journey here. Um, I am not giving anyone advice. Uh, I am, I'm merely telling my story and my observations and, you know, the emotions that I felt going through this. Mm -hmm. Um, like I, I think the one thing, and I'll say it at the end, but like, if you, if you do question or, or feel or even have like a seed of, of a thought that you need help or you have a problem, like reach out to someone. Just so, it doesn't have to be a professional. Just talk to someone. Um, so I, I do want to say that because like I want to be very conscious about definitely not giving advice. Like I am, I am so early in this. I just have to focus on myself. Just what you learned. Exactly. Yeah. And so what I took away and reflected on in my journey was there's really like three forces that lead to alcoholism and alcoholism is th this might sound surprising, but alcoholism is a threshold that you cannot step back over. One, once you have crossed in that, that threshold, you are there. I, I do believe that wholeheartedly from my story, from other people's stories, alcoholism and addiction as a whole. You mean like if you, if you were to relapse, that's kind of that scenario where you're not going to go to one beer, you're going to go right back to 14 beers. Exactly. And I'll, I'll, I'll prove to you every time I reintroduce alcohol into my life, it got worse. The mm -hmm. hole got deeper. And that's like a, that's, that's just like marquee addiction behavior right there. 
Yeah. And so I'm at, I'm at kind of fast forwarding now. I'm at a point where like, I know alcohol cannot be a part of my life at all. In any way. In any way. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, anyway, these three forces, one is, one is genetic, right? People, people talk about that all the time. Like, yeah, you know, my, my grandfather was an alcoholic and, and I, I have that gene. And, um, so there's that aspect you don't control that aspect, right? So it's, it's there or it's not. Um, then, then there's so sort of the, um, like social and environmental aspects. So like if from a cultural standpoint, if alcohol is not available, you're not, you're not going to be an alcoholic. If you don't see the behavior around yourself, you're not going to be an alcoholic. And then the final piece was like emotional slash trauma. So you, you experience something that is just like in intense and, and quite honestly, like probably more than an individual can handle. And if not addressed like that, that can grow. So it's a numbing effect or an escape mechanism. Oh, the, the, the yeah. And yeah. It, it works perfectly for that. Alcohol has a crazy power to do that. Yeah. But in reflecting back on my story, I believe I had all three in a very powerful way there's alcoholism in my family and my extended um, family as well. I went to school at a, at a place that, that did have a big like drinking culture around it. And it, it was the norm. And then around, I had a six month period um, right around the time that I was 21, where up to that point in my life, I experienced four or five things that were like the most impactful and traumatic experiences of my life up to that point. And just based on the circumstances of how life was working out for me, I had to deal with them alone and I wasn't reaching out to people. So I was separated from family. I was, I was on an internship, um, in the middle of nowhere, Iowa, Um, and, you know, basically had this few month period where it's just like all this trauma and this weight came upon me. And the funny thing about that summer on the internship is, um, that whole summer I bought one 24 pack of Coors Light and I didn't even drink the whole thing. And so it was just like this, this experience where it was like, I was withholding this stuff. And then I went back to school and I kind of got out of some responsibility. So up to that point, um, I did really well in school. Again, like if you looked at my paper resume, no indications of alcoholism. Like I held my stuff together. Um, I was top of my class um, in the department of engineering. Uh, I was heavily involved with campus. I was like president VP of, of all these different organizations when I had to buckle down and get stuff done, I, I could do that. But going into that fall semester, a lot of my responsibilities had dropped off. And I was basically sitting in a good spot where it's like that pressure and that that overhanging like anxiety around getting a job, that had kind of lifted from me because I had done so well mm-hmm. up to that point. And it was just like a perfect storm and it's just like everything 
everything released. Um, but again, like I held it together. I, I went to school for five years total. So I had two more years of school yet. And in those two years, it's like my drinking ramped up certainly, but I still held it together. Are like, you showing up to like class drunk, but no one knows? No. And, th and that's the thing. Like I was watching people show up to class intoxicated, but especially during, uh, there's a uh, festival called Visha at Iowa State that actually went away because riots and drinking got so out of control there. So like Visha week, you'd go to class and it's like, there's only 20% of the people there. No, in, in all of school, I can honestly tell you, <laughs> I missed like two classes. I had this, I had this like sense that it's like, I'm paying for this. Mm -hmm. Why, you know, why would I not have my butt in, in the, the seat, seat. Yeah. listening? And so like, and I really liked engineering. Like there's a very nerdy part of me that just like loved it. Like I didn't, I didn't really know what I wanted to do going into school, into college, but man, I'm, I'm lucky I stumbled into engineering and it, it's like, it was just a good synergy there. Are you hung over most days though? So hang, hangovers are like, yeah, pretty, pretty common, but it's like, man, you're young. Like you bounce back really well. Like one of the things that I started to realize um, as my drinking progresses is, is uh, wow, these hangovers sure take a lot of time um, to shake off these days. And, uh, you know, one one thing I, I would like, like if I could change something about, I, I would change many things, but I think one concept or idea that we should change around alcohol is like the term hangover kind of has like like there's a, a weird bit of power in it. Like, man, if you can do a workout when you're hungover, you know, like sweat it out. There is something to it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like I don't, I don't consider it or think about it as a hangover anymore. It is your body detoxing poisons. Like you are literally detoxing off of alcohol. One thing I learned and one thing I saw in rehab is of all the drug classes, um, your hard drugs, your fentanyl, your meth. The only ones where the detox will kill you is alcohol and benzos. That's wild. Yeah. That, what was your experience detoxing? So I uh, was actually surprised to find out. So um, a lot of people come into rehab drunk or on their drug of choice, uh, just kind of like giving it one last go before before detox. Um, I actually, my first date of sobriety is May 14th and I checked into detox on May 15th. So they do this whole thing and then they have you blow. Uh, they will not accept you if you're over a certain BAC. Um, so I blow zero and the tech checking me in, he's like, wow, like, <laughs> that's, that's awesome. It's rare. And, yeah. And I'm, I was kind of like taken aback. I'm like, well, what do you mean? And then later I find out people are like talking about what they blew when they came in. And it's like, Oh, even though I blew zeros, um, because my drug of choice was alcohol, you go on three days of anti-seizure medication. Now that was a trip. I don't, the, the three days that I, I, I can't tell you the drug name, I'm married to a pharmacist, but I can't pronounce <laughs> or I can't remember any drug names. But this anti-seizure uh, drug, it like creates this weird fog in front of reality. 
So like you can always tell people walking around their first few days, they're like, yeah, they're out. Like you have to wear a special wristband because you're a fall risk. And uh, it's it's just like this this weird experience where I can't distinguish the first three days, but I was basically getting into the program right away. My detox, like kind of looking at um, what my detox turned into, uh, and this is getting into the cycles and how um, the alcoholism really started to play out. Uh, I would, I was, I was maintaining my responsibilities that I had to just by the thinnest margins. Mm -hmm. And so, um, kind of like speeding through 12 years of, of intense struggle. What happened is I left school and my drinking went from a social aspect and shifted into isolation. And there was one day in particular, it was a Sunday and my wife was in pharmacy school and she was off studying and I was at her apartment and I'm watching, uh, at the time there was some Eagles documentary on, uh, on Netflix. It's freaking long. It was like four hours long. <laughs> and, uh, I'm, I'm laying there and I'm just feeling it from the night before and uh, I had a roommate that I lived with. Uh, we lived a couple blocks away from where my girlfriend, my now wife, uh, where her apartment was. And uh, I'm laying on the couch. I can't even tell you if my wife was there studying or if she had left and I was alone studying. But I went to like find something in the fridge. Um, and it's like, oh, she has a bottle of vodka in the freezer. And I'm like, I know what will take my headache away. And that was my first time drinking alone mm. and really first time drinking out of like your healthy drink schedule of like Friday, Saturday, recuperate Sunday, get back to it yeah. Monday. Daytime trying to use it yep. to fight some pain. Yep. And so uh, I wind up drinking and uh, walking out on the street. I, I don't even know where I was going. I wasn't headed back to my place, but I run into my roommate and his girlfriend out for a walk. And they're just kind of like shocked, taken aback. They were out with us the night before. And it was like, Kyle, are you drunk right now? And no, 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 no. Like I play it off and, um, you know, kind of go about my business. I don't remember the details um, from there. Like if I, if I went back um, to my, I guess I'll call her my girlfriend. That's what it was in the moment. If, if I went back to my girlfriend's place or, or what, but it's, it's like, that, that was the switch for me. Holy crap. Now this world of drinking alone is opened up mm -hmm. and drinking alone eliminated judgment. I got, I, cause I couldn't stop because I couldn't control my drinking. I always got judged. People, people are like, God, God, why, why are you always out of control, out of control? The drunk one, like you can stop, you know? And, and it's like, no, I can't like, I don't, I don't get it. I can't. Um, and, and so what started there, then all of a sudden we've got, we've got this isolation opened up to us. And, uh, that really began the cycles and what the cycles would look like. The cycles happened in like a macro and a micro sense. So I would go seven to 21 days clean, working out, getting up early, 
on time, doing my routine. Like I knew the things that I needed to do to like keep me grounded, to keep me right. And then um, something would set me off, either a good thing, like, like I could go on a drinking binge after I got, had like a really good high, like, man, I just, I just nailed this workout. Like literally this has happened. Like I just worked out so hard. I can drink. <laughs> like, are like you, you freaking kidding me? Like you, you earned it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, so it would be either a really high or a really low. Like someone could say something to me and just set me off. And, uh, then that would lead to three to seven days of, of a bender. And, I, you know, you're waking up in the morning with just intense regret. So it, it wound up by the end, like I couldn't sleep when I went, when I went on a bender, I would be awake for like 48 plus hours. And when I was detoxing, I couldn't sleep either. I would close my eyes and I could sense that my body was trying to sleep, but it was just like I was staring at the back of my eyelids. And then I'd wake up and I would just be so intensely angry with myself. And, you know, you just get the, I got to quit this. I'll never do this again. The shame and guilt. Oh my God. And, and shame's the right word. Guilt is fine. It's, it's okay to, to have guilt, to live with guilt. Shame is a whole nother issue that when you bring it upon yourself, like it can just crumble you. Mm -hmm. And, I was destroying myself. I was, I was destroying my relationship. And so anyway, I, the, the, I explained the micro cycles, but on a macro scale, like I would go and be sober for like six months, nine months at a time. And, uh, it's called white knuckling it. And it's literally just because you are doing everything in your power. Like you are just taking this burden on alone. And it's like, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. And, uh, that doesn't, that didn't work for me. And I would just break. And, and I always, I would be like, yeah, I, I'm not drinking now. And and there were like really impactful and, and meaningful moments of my life that I went through where I was sober. My wedding was during, um, a stretch of sobriety mm -hmm. and man, I mean, you talk about the best day of your life. <laughs> Um, to, to be able to do that sober and just like have that experience is something I'm so intensely grateful for. Yeah. Um, my move from Minnesota to Boise was, was a long stretch of sobriety for me. But while I was in those, I, I always had in the back of my mind, this idea that I want alcohol to be a part of my life. I wanted to be normal. Like two beers at dinner type. Two thing. beers, a wine. The the thing I always said is, I want to have a wine with my wife on the front porch. Mm. Um, one thing that was interesting that I discovered when I was reflecting back on things is, like, I'm I'm big on setting visions, like set as clear of a as a a visual for yourself to strive for. When so, living in Minnesota, I, I will be honest, I did not love Minnesota. I hate hate the winters. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, families there. And I, uh, I actually viewed moving back to Minnesota as a failure on my part. So there was always a sense of me that was like, I have to go, I have to establish myself somewhere new. And I've always been drawn to the mountains. So 
um, while living in Minnesota, like I had this really intense visual for myself and it was me. I mean, I can tell you what I was wearing. Um, it's this black long sleeve shirt, jeans. I'm standing on a deck uh, and I have a glass of red wine in my hand and the sun is setting in the mountains. And like that, that vision drove us to moving out West. Hmm. Um, it drove my wife and I to have a huge fight over this house that had <laughs> a deck when we were house hunting. And man, I am so glad she won that fight because it was a disaster house, but I she walked out on deck. the deck. Yeah. I was like, this is, oh, this is my vision. It was in the foothills. Yeah. Um, like 600 square foot deck. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh my God, this is it. And this will make me not an alcoholic. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, one thing I realized, I was like, oh my God, that glass of wine is meaningful. I always wanted a normal relationship with alcohol, but I had to come to terms with, the fact that it's not possible for me. Did you come through those terms after checking in? Yeah. Yes. It was, it was through the rehab, um, in my recovery journey. Um, so that's another thing just from a language perspective. Like I personally like using, uh, the concept of I'm in, I'm in recovery. Like that feels active to me. That, that feels like, you know, it's, it's something I control. I'm, I can take action on, um, to me, sobriety is what I was doing when I was white knuckling it. Um, that's just for me. Like I, I know other people in that are working like AA program and stuff like that. They use sobriety and that like is meaningful for them. Um, but yeah, being an active recovery, like that's when I realized it's just not a part of my life. It can't, it can't be. Um, backing up one yeah. step, when did your girlfriend and wife now start picking up on this? So she knew, like we met, um, we met in 2010, um, and she knew, so we spent, we dated for three years in college and she always knew like, Kyle, you just drink too much. Mm -hmm. And, uh, this is an important part. Like she was always a motivator for my periods of sobriety. Um, you know, it's like, I can see our relationship is kind of, is taking a hit. I want to want to better it. Like, you know, she's, she's just an, an unbelievable woman. And I knew pretty early on, like this one's special. I'm going to do what I can to hold on to this. Not screw it up. Yeah. And, but she knew like we would drink together and, um, man, she was just like, she's so normal. Like she's so in control. Um, she could have, she did have one night where it's like, she drank too much tequila. She got really sick. She behaved in ways she didn't want to behave. And next morning we were talking about it and she's like, well, I'm done with that. And like literally up, you know, 13 plus years later, it's like, <laughs> she's not, she's not touched it. And me and alcoholic, I can look at that and be like, this is like, my wife doesn't even know this. I've, uh, I've like literally drank a beer gagged on it, threw up the foam, taken a pause and then drank again. Jeez. Like you talk about not learning yeah. and, and not being able to be like, Hey, you know, maybe, uh, maybe stop. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just, it's crazy. And, and so I saw that in her and like, she was one of those people that she could leave that, that culture of drinking and just be like, all right, next phase of life. Um, and, and so she always knew and like this, that's actually a perfect lead in to 
the darkest times. And that was the last two and a half to three years of my drinking. So my wife got pregnant with, um, our first, uh, son. And, uh, she told me it was around, it was around the holidays and in 2020. So she tells me and I'm like, the super excited. And, uh, I think like that night when she told me, I'm like, Hey, if you're not drinking, I'm not drinking. And I meant it when I said it, cause I was like, I've white, you know, I wasn't calling it white knuckled, but it's like, I've done this before. I know yeah, I can six, do it. Six, nine months is a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's like, all right, no problem. She's not going to drink. I'm not going to drink. We have no reason to have alcohol in the house. I honestly, a lot of this stuff I remember, but I don't know what it was um, that set me off. But about two months into that, I was like, I'm, I work from home during the pandemic. Um, my wife works late. And uh, so there's a lot, and, and I work shifted hours, right? So we're in mountain time. A lot of my uh, coworkers are East Coast um, or coworkers at the time. And uh, it's like, I don't know. I Let's drink. I, I just, something stressed me out and, you know, go to the grocery store, grab it and start drinking. And I just had this like, dang it, mm -hmm. I wasn't going to do this and shame. And so then I go, how do I get away with this? And that's where the line started. So my wife would come home. Kyle, why are you acting weird? What's going on? Sometimes she could smell it on my breath and she'd be like, have you been drinking? Yeah, but it was just, it was just one, like, sorry, I had this really bad meeting and yada, yada. Okay. And we kind of worked through that. Um, you know what I learned from that? All right. I drank IPAs tonight. She smelled it on me. I'm not going to drink IPAs again. I went into this total optimize mode for getting away with drinking. Wild. It's crazy. Yeah. What that caused was all of my energy and effort and creativity shifted from like work, family, things that should matter to how do I keep sustaining this lie and, and continue it on knowing that like, I have to get out of this cycle. I don't want to be drinking. I don't want to be an alcoholic, but it is just like literally pulling me in. And That's so a of, it's a lot of brain space. Just it was, it was exhausting. And my, my work, like I I've always prided myself on doing really good work. Um, and it went into the tank, like just the, the thinnest of margins, whatever I could do to just get by, I was like just surviving the work day as much as possible. And, uh, like literally it was, it was all of my mental capacity, like put in, I was at I was at breakfast with Zach the other day and he was asking some questions and I was, I was telling him what I would be thinking about if I was still in my cycle of addiction. And we were at breakfast at like six, six 15 in the morning. And, uh, I was telling him, I'm like, here's what I'd be thinking. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm thinking about the gas stations that I haven't hit up recently in this area. I'm in a different part of town, so I won't be judged by the clerk when I'm checking out. I mean, you're, you're literally cycling stores where you, where you're buying stuff to make it seem like you're not consuming oh, yeah. as much as you are. Like there are times I'd be, I'd be checking out and I'm like, God, I hope that guy's not there. 
right now. And I'd see him walking in and I'm like, dang it. Okay. Gotta be fast. And it's like, like a, no eye contact. Jeez. It's, it's terrible. It was, it was absolute hell. And, and all of this. So uh, Alyssa comes home, Kyle, what the hell is going on? Why are you acting so weird? Why can't you remember things? Why? Like, and she is smart. She's insanely bright. And so I had to dig and just find craft up something that made this seem semi believable. And so it's, uh, it's depression and anxiety, you know, like I have some sort of psychosis and I'm just losing control and, um, mm. all of this. And the ironic thing is, uh, I gave myself depression and anxiety <laughs> at the end when I was clean for those seven to 21 days, I was a terrible person. I was insanely irritable. Um, everything was doom and gloom. Uh, the hardest, one of the hardest things for me was like when my son did come around, like there were periods where I was looking at him and it's just like, I know what people are telling me in terms of what I'm supposed to be feeling, like the amount of joy and the amount of love. And it's like, why don't I feel that way? And it, that caused it to get worse. Mm -hmm. And so by the end, again, I'm putting everything I can to support this lie. I'm seeing a counselor. I've seen five or six counselors in my life. No offense to them or the profession. I know what story they want to hear. And, and so I just craft the story arc for them and just I deliver it to them week over week and I can get myself out of there. Just like the gas stations, just yep. like work in your system. Exactly. And so I'm seeing a counselor and it, you know, they're prescribing medicine. I'm take, I, I'm like as anti-medication, you know, if you have a headache, just like drink some electrolytes, <laughs> you know, don't, don't go to the aspirin or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, I'm on like five or six meds each morning. I'm drinking on top of the meds. I know, I know that's not right. Um, and at the show, uh, I was worried someone was going to catch me, but I was, I was on beta blockers just to calm my nerves. And for those that don't know, beta block, beta blockers are used for like stage fright and they work. Like I could feel my heart wanting to ramp up and it, it just calmed me. Um, that was another aspect I got, I gave myself legit performance anxiety at work. I couldn't, if I was called on randomly, I couldn't talk. It would just start fluttering, shaking, and, and my voice starts going, um, there, there's no way on God's green earth that I could sit down and do this conversation with you. Like I'm not comfortable in front of cameras. This mic is, is an oddity <laughs> for me. And, uh, like I was a little nervous to start, but that performance anxiety has like lifted. I now have ways of controlling it. And so anyway, the end of the, the blackest part of my life was for whatever reason, I started thinking about my death a lot. Um, and one of the things I told my wife constantly when I was, when I was drunk and like trying to get out of things was like, I just feel like I'm dying. I feel like I'm dying. And I was, slowly killing myself. Like with the amount I drank, I, I may have chopped some months, years off my life. Um, I hope not, but, um, only time will tell. Mm -hmm. And, uh, 
So this concept of death kept coming up. And then the, that vision aspect came back to me. And I started having a vision like, okay, what is your best case scenario out of this? You, you, beat, this al- you, you beat this issue with alcohol. It becomes a normal part of your life. Yay, everything's happy. You and Alyssa live on with the family. Um, and you're on your deathbed. And Alyssa's sitting there next to you. Are you going to die taking this lie to the grave? Or are you going to do like the worst thing imaginable and on your deathbed tell and admit to your wife of 60 plus years that, hey, remember that three year stint where we just like couldn't figure out what was going on? I was actually drinking all the time, all the time. And that thought was such a gift. That vision was such a gift because it ate at me and it ate at me and it ate at me. Finally, to a point where I'm like, all right, this has to be done. This has to break. And um, I won't go into details about how it broke, but um, I am forever grateful uh, to my brother-in-law, Alyssa's sister, uh, Alyssa's brother, um, for he was in town and he had the guts to say during a drinking episode where he didn't know I was drinking, he's like, go to the hospital, get some blood work done. And we had encouragement like, yeah, you got someone to watch your son go in. I knew full well, they draw my blood. They're going to find, they're going to find booze. They could probably get drunk off my blood. Yeah. And uh, I agreed to it. And it was a sloppy, dirty, ugly way to come out with the truth. Mm. But it's how it came out. And you know, we're sitting in the hospital and the nurse delivers the news. She's like, everything's normal, except you have a lot of alcohol in your blood. Was that part of the brother-in-law's plan, you think? To- I think, yeah, I think yeah. he knew something was up. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm just glad, like, this is this is a problem, not just with alcoholism, but like mental struggle is like people don't want to ask or, or people don't want to like, interject. And, uh, it is a really hard and delicate balance. Like asking someone like, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm Mm. fine. It's like, no, no, no. Are you okay? And you know, he, he really, he did help push to make sure that, you know, this got out. And so no normal, normal story. You would, you would think like, all right, truth's out, uh, goes to rehab, fixes himself. But, uh, for whatever reason, alcohol had a different, um, take on how it wanted to end. Backing up one second. Yeah. Your wife was with you on that blood draw though. Yes. So sitting next to me in the hospital. So then you had a big conversation in front of you now. Yeah. And you talk about grace and strength. She didn't shed a tear. I, and I think for her, from her perspective, it was just, this all makes sense. And, um, yeah, I mean, I just like, I'll never forget the look on when the nurse walked in, I didn't look at the nurse. I looked at my wife. And she just nodded 
nodded along. Um, and then the nurse left and, and we talked hmm. and, um, and this, this is the part of the story where we get connected with the rehab facility because they send someone in to check you out and, you know, it's a social worker and like doing an interview and she's got like 20 pages of paper on, um, things that we could do to help me kick the alcoholism. And just so happened that the place I went to was one of them. Um, but yeah, so that was a Thursday. We go to the hospital Friday, Saturday. Um, this is not going to make any sense. So, you know, I'm just going to say it. Um, I decided that I was either going to die by alcohol poisoning or I was going to change. And so I had two days of attempting to drink as much as I can to see if I could just end it. And being on the side of things that I'm at right now, that doesn't make sense, but it was, it was truly just like a last grasp of this thing that I think figured out it was losing. And, um, yeah, luckily I woke up on Sunday morning. Um, I learned, uh, my parents were in flight from Minneapolis to Boise to come support us and help us. How much but, were they in the loop on? Everyone was surprised that Thursday, but at the same time, everyone's like, this makes sense. Mm-hmm. The, everyone has known I've, I've had problems in the past. Um, and, uh, I think in part, you know, I, I'd, I'd have to directly ask them, but I think it was almost a relief in some regards, like, oh my gosh, there's an explanation. Yeah. Like so I know it's strange behavior. Yes, exactly. And, um, and so, yeah, my parents get there and we had called, uh, North point, um, in, in Boise, they've got a few locations out here, but 20 minutes from our home is just an unbelievable place. It's exactly what I needed. And talk to them. They're like, well, we can get you in at 11 PM tonight. And of course all the flags go up and all the excuses start pouring out. I'm like, no, 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 we can't do that. This, that, and the other thing. And so they're like, all right, 10 AM tomorrow. Okay. Tomorrow I can do. Um, so I had about 24 hours of and I am so grateful Alyssa was there and I'm so grateful my parents were there because it's like every time I came up with an excuse, we were able to push it down. Mm-hmm. Work. Nope. Fill out a few forms online, call your boss, talk to him, and you're you're fine. Mm-hmm. Well, Grant, our son, um, like who's gonna take care of him? We'll figure it out. I, my parents stayed. I think Alyssa spent three days alone the whole time that I was in. Um, family just pitched in in a huge way. Um, and just sort of like every excuse as to why you can't do it. As we're talking it through, it's like, yeah, that's just an excuse. So like, it doesn't matter. Like, get yourself there. And so um, in rehab, super surreal walking in. I walked in with Alyssa. There's someone checking you in across the table. We do a few things. Um, it's like, all right, uh, keys, wallet, phone on the table. Um, put them on the table. He grabs them. He's like, I'll give you five minutes and I'll be back in. And uh, it's like, holy crap, you turn you know, to the person that you made a, a vow to and, and promised to that you would 
work through the thick and thin together through anything. And you're like, I'm, I'm causing us to be separated. Like, mm. you know, it, it was a last goodbye for a number of, of days. We got, we got visitations every Sunday for an hour and a half, but man, that felt like a long time away. Yeah. Um, so really intense five minutes and then tech comes in, Alyssa gets up and leaves and you're alone. And I had a moment that I think transformed my, my journey. And honestly, like maybe over dramatic, but like it saved my life. And that was, I made two promises to myself before I stepped into rehab and the programming. One was that I was going to attend everything and I was not going to question anything about the programming. I'm really good at pushing back on things and asking <laughs> why. I was just flat out going to assume that they were right. The second rule that I set for myself was every single time I passed a mirror, I had to look at my eyes in the mirror and say out loud, I love you. Mm. Because my journey in my 12 years had turned into so much self-hatred that I believe that was at the core of my issue in a, in a big way, among, among other things. But I genuinely hated myself. And because I hated myself, I couldn't understand how other people could possibly love me. And so I sabotaged those relationships. So I knew, it's like, I am alone here. I am not doing this for any other person but myself. I need to get my relationship with me right. Yes, you got to help yourself before you can help anyone else. Absolutely. It's crazy you thought of that, though. I feel like, I don't know why, but before even stepping out of that check-in room, I was like, all right, dude, you're going you're gonna to do these two things. And just like your question about class, like, I went to every single... <laughs> program like they had they had some like very very hippie uh <laughs> yoga instructor and uh i'm not gonna lie there are some fun things about rehab <laughs> right like your responsibilities drop off for 28 days like you are pretty much just working on yourself nothing to worry about yeah and uh we would have yoga and uh every once in a while she brought in this uh this gong or these bowls <laughs> and uh she did uh she did this, this vibration thing. Like I, I thought she was going to get up there and just start whacking the gong. She, she like would rub it in a circular motion <laughs> at different, uh, like radiuses or radii. And then, um, like it would just cause this like intense vibration through the room. And literally all you did there was lay <laughs> and shut your eyes. People were coming out of these sessions. who are like, I saw the walls moving like I saw, and and it was it was trippy like I'm not a very visual person in that sense but you could feel like they they would hit this certain tone and it was just like whoa your body yeah. like kind of started so we would at, by the end we were like recommend or um, asking for like can you bring the gong on Friday and uh so there was weird stuff like that there was art therapy which I'm like man I'm not going to be into that but Again, like you step in, you step into it and it's like, okay, what's your rule? All right. I guess I'm going to do it. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, it would, it would impact you. And like, for me, one thing I realized with art therapy specifically was like, 
I was trying to put on this facade, this mask, and just project like everything's okay. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. Like no one, the, the people closest to me um, had no idea what was going on. And again, like if you looked, if you looked at like my career arc and like how things had gone in school, like, man, things seemed really good, but they were falling apart. That's an insane thing about alcoholism is how you can keep that mask on. Yeah. That's crazy. Yes. No. And, and it's, it's totally destructive because then, then you're like, well, Dustin thinks this about me. Like I need to, I need to maintain that. Like I can't, I can't show him any signs of like vulnerability or, or weakness when really like vulnerability and, and admitting your weaknesses is like the key to growth in all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that's what I've found. And so, yeah, like rehab. Um, the other thing I would say about it is like you grow some really intense bonds um, and genuine love for people. Uh, addicts are amazing in a, in a very interesting way. Um, and, you know, I, I feel very blessed and lucky to have met the group and to have gone through with the group that I went through. Like, I, I think we had a unique blend in there and like really close and tight with a lot of them. Um, but it's just 28 days. Like it's pretty fast. That's pretty short. It's enough. So 28 days, you know, it takes three weeks to form a habit. So they add a buffer week on there. I think the problem and the reason you get a lot of relapse coming out of rehab is you don't realize that now you're shifting your environment and you almost have this new window of time where like you need to reestablish your habits and your routines. So I got out of rehab and uh, I didn't go back to work. I did what's called a partial hospitalization program. So I, I continued going to group therapy every single day, Monday, um, Monday through Friday uh, for many hours and, you know, continued work, self-reflection, things like that. But you're staying at home and you get to start establishing that that new routine and the new relationship with things that had been triggers in the past. Yeah. I, I work from home professional. Um, so I, I drank at home. Yeah. I'm not moving just because that's where I drank. So like, I have this weird thing. Like I hear some people that are, are sober. They're like, just don't go to the same places. Don't hang out with the same people. But it's like, well, with alcohol, it's accepted. It's all around. And like, you can do it. Like I did it in my house. So how, how do I separate myself? So I, I had to like re-engage with the environments and establish a new relationship. And I got that. So Zach picked me up from, from rehab, you know, that shows like what a good friend he is. I shot him a text as I was going in and basically said like, Hey, I'm an alcoholic. I almost killed myself. I'm going in for 28 days. I think I get some phone calls Jeez. and I'll give you a call. Cause it, he had no idea. No idea. That's it, insane. Yeah. And I called him once while I was in, you know, you only get like 15 minutes a day. So it's kind of hard to squeeze like your whole list of family and whatnot. And so I call Zach, talk to him. Um, and then I call, I did call him twice. Cause I called him. I'm like, Hey, I get out on June 12th. Can you be here at five 45 in the morning to pick me up? And he's like, see you there, man. And, you know, I walk out, picks me up, we hug, hop in the car, we're having conversation, just, just asking questions about it. Um, but driving home, one thing I realized, I, I counted, 
It's 6 a.m. in Idaho, which is a conservative state. Um, there were six locations that we could have stopped at, and I could have legally bought my drug of choice with no second judgment, I guess. On your first day home. On my, yeah, and, <clears throat> and I had this realization on the drive home. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to have to live with this. Like I better, I better get to a place where I like seeing alcohol or being in a place like doesn't break me. Mm. And guess what? I got to my Airbnb. So I stayed in Idaho Falls last night. I'm poking around the Airbnb looking for some stuff for coffee. And I opened the fridge. It like coffee's not going to be in the fridge, but I opened the fridge just to see <laughs> what was in there. Two tall boy rolling rocks and four white claws. And I just smiled, took a picture, <laughs> shut the door, and was like. Man, that was interesting. <laughs> and uh, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah, yeah, and you never know when you're going to get surprised by it. So like you can't you can't be so delicate. Like before, the way I would describe it, before it was with my like mental stability, it was like balancing a quarter on a wobbly stool. And like you'd get it balanced, and you'd be like, "Oh my god, don't don't breathe, don't touch anything." And then there'd be like one little disruption of the stool and it would fall. Except that quarter falling was like my life falling apart, man. And yeah. And so like, anyway, I did, I did the, uh, the four weeks and then I went back to work. I was back to work by, by mid July and like committed, got really committed to AA. That was, that was another part of this whole story. Um, and AA also most importantly reintroduced me to, accepting God and having faith. And so I found in my time in rehab, I was pushing back on something. And they, they would bring us out to AA meetings in the community. And I was like, ah, this feels kind of culty to me. Mm. And there was a spiritual aspect um, to AA. And uh, I'm like, I, I just don't know. And AA kind of like they use language to make it soft and accepting, which is, is good, I think. But, you know, their concept is, is a higher power. It's mm-hmm. so like, just believe that anything out there is like more powerful than you and has your best interests in mind. They don't identify a specific God. In exactly. AI. Exactly. It's like, just start there. Let's start there and then, and then see how you can progress. And uh, I was pushing back on that. And I realized that probably after a week of going to AA meetings and I'm like, you know, that day I'm like, okay, I'm going to give this a try. And then at that meeting, we're sitting there and, and this, uh, the concept of a higher power comes up as a topic. And a guy had, a, he shared something that just like intensely spoke to me and unlocked everything really. Um, and all he said was, I don't want a God that I can understand. And I was like, oh, dang it. <laughs> that's it. It's like, that's all I needed to hear. Like my struggle, my pushback the whole time is, has been like, yeah, but this doesn't make sense. It's your engineer brain. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. And, and it's like, I sat there and I'm like, can I get comfortable with just accepting that something doesn't necessarily have to have like a resounding why to it? And it's like, okay, yeah, I can. And so, you know, I, I thought I was bought in. I'm like, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm kind con- and, and I was like, I don't need 
to call it higher power. Like I can call it God. I'm comfortable with that. And, uh, you know, I go, go about, uh, my business and rehab and finish up, um, all of, all of that, get back to work. I'm continuing to go to AA. Um, the, uh, the additional like support and, um, just like unbelievable love that I was shown when I got back to work was incredibly humbling. Um, and so I had this new found like love and support system through work where you're spending a lot of your time and then I'm going to AA and it's like, things are great. Parallel story to all of this is, uh, my wife's second week or yeah, my, the, the second weekend when my wife came to visit, um, she told me she was pregnant with our second, second week of your rehab. rehab. Dang. Yep. And so it's like, all right, let's do this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I get out, um, things are good. There's, there's a concept in recovery. It's called the pink cloud. Uh, generally people say it, it's like 90 days long and it's just like this, oh my gosh, everything is so great. Like, yeah, when you get sober after using drugs and alcohol, like really hard, like things get better. Like you feel great. You nail a workout and you're like, oh man, I'm sweating. Like I feel good. Your sleep improves. It's like, oh my God, so many good things. (laughs) And there's like, there's like this, I was paranoid about day 90 of sobriety because of the stories of people getting there. And then it's like, yeah, but what next? Or like reality sets in. And so there's this pink cloud concept and I t- I've talked to a lot of people in AA and in recovery that are like, listen, the pink cloud does not have to end. And I, be- I believe that. I think what the pink cloud is, is, is a mindset shift. And so like, it's really easy to have that mindset shift in the short term, but it's like, what do you do? How do you sustain that for the long term? And, uh, I didn't know, I, I didn't know at the time, but, um, Anyway, so things are things are going great. Everything's getting better. I'm going to AA. Work's improving. Um, my son's second birthday is coming up, and uh, my wife has her 16 week ultrasound um, August 8th. My 90 day sobriety is August 12th. My son's second birthday. So man, a big week. Man. Looking forward to it. Yeah. And uh, we go into her ultrasound and love her doctor. Um, and just like really incredible person, weird sense of humor, but I love it. <laughs> and uh, we're we're walking back to the ultrasound room, joking around, and um, we sit down, and he gets a he gets a um, device on my wife's stomach, or and immediately he turned clinical again, a very professional way, but he turned very clinical. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like we didn't find out the sex of our son until he was born. Like we didn't want to know everything, anything. Our concept was like, no matter what our child is, we're going to love them. And, and so like, we didn't want to know, um, in his case and the doctor was like, all right, look, look away. He knew that, oh, we wanted that again. So he's like, look away. I got to look at the gender. So he, um, looks at the baby's gender and then he's like, okay, I'm seeing something very concerning. And Um, there was indications, uh, basically our, our baby had a, a growth assist on coming off the back of her neck and, uh, it, it was a girl we found out. Um, and he's like, they don't usually make it past the first trimester. 
And so we're going to recommend you to seeing some specialists and, you know, you can do some genetic testing, but like we need to start figuring out what's going on. And so, um, over the next 13 days, we had like six specialist visits. Um, we thought, um, we thought at one point, well, let me back up, um, because I just like skipped over the most important part. Uh, so sitting in the doctor's office that first day, Monday, August 8th, I hope that's right. Um, uh, when his tone changed and he started saying, you know, there seem there seemed to be some really not positive looking signs here. I kind of tuned out the rest of the discussion between him and my wife. Cause I was, I was sitting off on my own mm. and I just kind of like had this moment where everything sort of zeroed in and it was like, this is it. This is exactly what you deserve and what you had coming for 12 years of alcoholism for three years of lying for not being the type of man that you should have been. And this is God punishing you. Just as quickly as that thought ran through my mind, another one came and, and I literally thought, no, that's not right. God always knew and had planned for this little girl to come into my life and he gave me alcoholism and this 12 years of struggle and battle and the, this, these final intense 90 days of really getting yourself together mm. so that you can be ready for what is to come. And it was just like, it was this weird moment where, you know, it's like, I don't know if God finally got fed up with me where he's like, God, this guy keeps asking questions and like <laughs> poking back at me. Okay, fine, dude, come over here. Like, see, this is all part of a plan. Get over it. Get back to life. Like he hit you in the head. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just like, oh my God, I, I, I could not stand up and, and bear this load that we have gone through in the past. Um, I think it's six uh, 15 weeks or so since that ultrasound, a little less, 14, 13, whatever. Mm. Um, I could not have done that without having that time to really figure myself out and focus in on, on myself and what I need to do in order to support and serve others. And so... Yeah, we went through, um, we, we did a procedure on that Thursday to, um, like start some genetic testing just because like, we wanted to know how to prepare ourselves to raise this little girl and, um, had some insanely low odd, um, complications from that procedure that had us back in, uh, in the hospital on Friday and the ultrasound tech puts the, the device up 
to my wife and immediately it's just like, that's not good. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we're crying and, uh, the ultrasound tech, like unbelievably professional again. Like I, I don't understand how you work in those fields where you're dealing with such intense moments in people's life. But she just kept saying, she's like, guys, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And so she left, um, to so- show the imaging to the doctor and, my wife and I had 10 minutes where we're like, we're going to lose this baby today. And so we came up with a name. Um, it was really impactful and meaningful to us. And it was a name like we hadn't really considered. Um, so it's just like, all right, she's got a name, you know, we're ready for this. And man, just like all of a sudden the door opens And the doctor walks in and he looks at us and he goes, this is not over. Hmm. And it was just like, man, if there were words we needed to hear, (laughs) that was it. Right now, yeah. And and so, yeah, we've been um, basically going back to the doctor every single week. They've been trying. It took them like 10 weeks to figure out even what's what's going on with her. She has something called Noonan syndrome. Um, She's got heart complications that require immediate open heart surgery and then surgery again six months later and then surgery again six years later. When we fo- we were in a place where when we found out there were only three open heart surgeries to do to save her life, we were like, oh, my, thank God. Mm-hmm. Like, that's amazing. And, um, like, just um, on on every time we went to the doctor, it was like there's something new to worry about. And, and she does have some continued serious symptoms that are, that are showing. Um, she's got significant fluid in her lungs where it's like, we're concerned about lung development and basically our little girl's battle starts the minute that cord gets cut. And it's like, we don't, we don't know if she's going to make it to heart surgery. You know, I, I, I've, talked about vision uh, a couple times here and I realize driving in and thinking about it like my vision is very much distilled down to this image of um my uh my wife and and my uh, little girl together in the hospital and you know I don't I don't I just <clears throat> You know, you have kids, it's like you see what our wives go through yeah. in, in pregnancy. And it's like she is never separated from the fact that she's pregnant. I can get on doing something and being like, oh, yeah, we have a baby on the way. Like For you, guys, you can, it's hard. Yeah, yeah, you can forget it. And um, just like this, I just I just want her to be able to hold our little girl um, and you know, I'll do, I'll do anything that I can in my power to make that, to make that possible. But yeah, cause kind of some of the outcomes of this, like we, uh, what's the current status of the pregnancy in weeks right now? Yeah. So we're at, uh, we're at 27 or we're, I think we're at 28 today, actually. Um, cause Four. we had an ultrasound on, on Wednesday and I think it was like 27, five. So 20, 28 today. And, and because of the complications, like our little girl has to make it to term. 
we met with a palliative care team in Boise because one, one important aspect, our girl can't survive in Boise. They, they just do not have the surgical capabilities there. There's only a few in the nation. Crazy. It, it just so happens that like a top tier surgical center is 25 minutes from my parents' front door. And so it's like, all right, we're moving to Minnesota. And I, I told you before that killed me the last time I had to move back to Minnesota. And this time I'm just totally accepting. It's like, that's what, that's what we have to do. We're doing it. And I don't feel I, I like it, it's just the way it's supposed to be. I don't know how else to explain it. And so, yeah, we're 28 weeks along. Um, we met with the palliative care team because it's like, well, if something happens before you move to Minnesota, what are your wishes? And really our wishes are what I d described. It's like, we want time with our little girl. Like we know, we know that it'll be minutes or hours, but like, we want, we want that time with her. Like, <clears throat> I never understood this before becoming a parent, but like how much l intense love you feel and develop for for something for someone that hasn't even been born mm -hmm. and it's like you know even even if we are only given minutes and hours like she is she is leading and she is living a purposeful life and she's been a gift mm -hmm. to our life and this is this is without a doubt the the um the most stressful emotional and uh difficult thing that that my wife and I have ever been through together um as individuals and as a couple um and like I wouldn't change anything about our story like it's just right it is the way it's supposed to be. Hmm. And like a big thing, I, I mean, in AA, you say, you say the serenity prayer every, every single meeting. Oh. Which is super helpful. Like <sighs> what you can control and not control. Yeah. Yeah. So it's God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And it truly is a situation where there's nothing we can do. And so it's like, okay, are you going to let that destroy you? Or are you going to just be accepting and capable of, of moving forward and moving through this? Like we didn't, this, this suffering and this burden is not by choice. And so the, like just have to bear it. Mm -hmm. I mean, other, the, the alternative is, is, I mean, the alternative for me is death. Like again, being dramatic here, but it's where I'm at, at with my recovery reintroduction of alcohol into my life. You know, if I, I, if I hit a point where I'm like, God, my nerves are just fried. Like this is too much. A drink would calm me down. That's that's going on a road um, to a grave for me. 
So my alternative is, is death. And, uh, so yeah, I've, I've made the choice that this is just the way it's supposed to be. This is like, you know, this is the forging of, of us as a couple of me as an individual and it's all exactly how it's supposed to be. It's pretty wild in hindsight to think about if this would have happened before you went to rehab. Oh my God. It's like it, I'm happy that it's not a reality I have to play out, but I, I would be lying to you if I said I hadn't thought of it. And, and like the easy thing is, um, <laughs> easy answer is, uh, I'd, I'd be divorced or dead. Mm-hmm. Like that's, <laughs> that's the truth. Yeah. I, you wouldn't have been ready. For, no, Yeah. not at all. And it truly was like, it, alcoholism was training. Like looking back, alcoholism was way easier than what we're going through right now. But in a weird way, like the weight and the, the burden of what we're going through because of the of the faith in God and the idea that this this is part of a plan. It feels less burdensome. It's like when you I mean we're on a fitness podcast, so I should probably tie it to that. <laughs> it's like when you when you do a routine or an exercise with bad form, it's like it's harder than when you do it right. You know that feeling like when you go to deadlift and like your form is right on and all of a sudden you just pick up comes right really up. heavy weight. It's like, oh, holy crap. <laughs> it's like, that's that's like kind of what I can compare it to. It's like our, our form is right. But our form, our form is like the, the strong foundation in our faith now. I used to always be like super uncomfortable um, pray. I'm still not like a good prayer, but like I take time in the morning now and I just sit. Um. And it, it winds up like just letting thoughts process and like, I let myself feel emotions. Now that's, that's one thing that I always ran from with, uh, in going to alcohol is like stamp down these emotions. Don't let yourself, don't let yourself feel them. Um, I was out on a, uh, my archery elk hunt in Idaho and I was, I was on a, I took a really long route back. And so I had a, a ton of time to think. And, uh, my mind, my mind got going to like the hospital and, uh, the, the idea of, is my son going to see my daughter alive? He is so in love with his little sister, mm. kisses her every good night, talks about her all the time. And, uh, I'm thinking about this on my walk and I'm like, dang, here comes a, just, I'm going to lose it. And I just like stopped and I just cried, but it wasn't like a sorrowful cry. Like it just emotion it was, it was cleansing. And like, I got it out and it's like, all right, I needed that. Um, another example recently is, uh, my best friend from, from rehab. I found out from his girlfriend texting me through his phone <laughs> that he's back in jail. And like, he and I were really tight. Um, if my daughter was, I proposed that if my daughter was a, a boy, I wanted to name her after him. Mm. And, uh, you know, finding out he was in jail, another another thing being in recovery, like 
You cannot tie your continued recovery to anyone else's success or failure. Like there's a ton of failure coming out of rehab. And if you're like, well, dang, that guy, Bob, failed. that, that, that guy relapsed. Like you, you get a, you get a case when you're an addict, you get a case of, of the efforts. And it truly is like when that enters your mind, um, when that thought enters your mind, like you're in a bad place, like you need, you need help immediately. Um, and so it's like, I found that I got this news that my best friend was in jail and, uh, I had 10 minutes before my next meeting and I just allowed myself to sit down and just be sad. I got sad at the fact that he was in jail and like that we had such a great friendship that is likely going to change, but it's like, you know what? Feel that and, and pro like let that run through your system. Don't, don't take any action on it by like going and buying booze. That's, that's for sure. Or just brushing it off. Or just brush. Yeah, absolutely. Acknowledge, acknowledge that it's a thing. And like one of the sayings that I've gotten out of rehab and AA that I think is really important. Um, and I know I said I'm not going to give advice, but it, it like could help, help people is like a problem spoken is a problem cut in half. And so for me, I've gotten to a point where I'm comfortable talking to other people for other people who might be struggling, like do it in the mirror, like just say it to yourself, even if it's not like alcohol or addiction related, like if there's something you're feeling or, or like some problem that you're facing, like speak it out loud. I, f I found myself doing that when I was on solo hunts is like, I'm talking to myself, not necessarily in any too crazy, uh, sense, but I would talk my plan out loud so that I could hear it. And it allowed me to process it and go, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Hmm. And, uh, I think, I think you can apply that like broadly across life. Like if you do have problems or, or if you have not problems, but if you have barriers to having comfort opening up to someone, do it to yourself in the mirror. It does get it out into the light a little bit. Yeah. Instead of in the darkness. Absolutely. The isolation. Yeah. Isol isolation is the killer of addicts. And, mm. and, and I think isolation is at the root of a lot of our problems. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's been obviously an unexpected, um, journey and I'm still on it and, and I'm, I'm fresh and I'm continually learning and, um, I feel like growing every day. Um, I really focused on like asking myself when I woke up each day, can I be 0.01% better in any aspect of my life today? And that's like pretty manageable. And I, I think if you focus on that across like all the aspects of your life, like it is insane how fast things can change. And when you're at your lowest point or what feels like rock bottom, 
I think one thing to be conscious of is there is always a lower point and it's your choice to determine if, if where you're at right now is going to be your low or if you do want to go lower, Mm -hmm. but changes can happen fast and they can, they can stick. I mean, Alcoholics Anonymous is full of rooms of people that have years and years of, of sobriety who are addicts to the core. And I am, I am one of them, but I'm earlier on my journey. Um, I think the one thing to say, like in closing, um, if people do feel that they have a, a problem um, AA has an unbelievable app and all you have to do is type in your zip code and it will show you the closest meetings that are running that day. And just maybe go and give it a try. I never would have before. I, I had to work through that barrier with my approach to rehab, but people don't have to take the same extreme approach to recovery that I took. Yeah. And, um, you know, the AA app is, is free, punch in your zip code, find a meeting. You'll find a a room full of people that don't judge and are intensely welcoming. Mm -hmm. Um, you don't have to say anything, just listen. Uh, there's just going to be people talking. It's like, it's a really scary concept from the outside looking in, but, it's also a life-saving program and, and group of people. Um, so a big part is also having a sponsor, correct? Yes. And that's, that's another good part. So, or another good point. So you can, you can go to meetings and just sit there and listen. Um, but it is encouraged to, and that's why I like talking about active recovery versus just sobriety So what I mean um, in more detail on active recovery is like, I have a sponsor. How did I get a sponsor? I literally said at a meeting, hey, I'm new to this. I need a sponsor. (laughs) And some woman goes, that guy over there is good. Why? Like, hey, come over here, talk, exchange numbers. And I get his number and kind of had an awkward moment where I'm like, it was was sort of like the dating scene. I'm like, so are we... (laughs) are we a thing or (laughs) Or not? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll sponsor you. (laughs) And uh, so I'm like, Oh cool. I have a sponsor now. And uh, there's 12 steps and um, you know, the 12 steps are readily available. And the the sponsor's job is to guide you through those steps. And, And what that entails, it's like just you as the addict, you as the individual, you have to do the work, but the sponsor is there to, to kind of say, well, why don't you think about this this way? Or, um, you know, just to carry on those discussions. A lot, a lot of my um, active recovery with my sponsor has been, you know, in a four to six hour time window, sitting down with him face to face and just like giving him my story, talking through where I've I've become. Honestly, my acceptance of of God and and my faith kind of like accelerated me through because it is a spiritual program. The first, the first thing that you have to do, um, with AA, with addiction is say, my life has become unmanageable. That's, that's your first step. 
got to admit it. You have to admit it and you have to accept it. And then, and then, and there are people that show up to AA that are not able to get through their first step, but they're there. Mm-hmm. And so they have the potential. Um, with my story, because I went through rehab, I had a lot of time to, to work and think on myself. I was able to get through the first steps after like a breakfast meeting with my sponsor. He's like, okay, you're on step four. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then, you know, there's a lot of writing. Like I have, I have like 14 pages of like people that I have built up resentments against in my life and just, you know, pen to paper writing down. And one, one thing you realize is like, there's generally a common theme that runs through all of your resentments. And then in talking it through with your sponsor, you can kind of start to address, tease that out. Those themes. And address it. Yeah. And then um, really it's kind of like, you know, make, make amends, you know, apologize to the people that, um, that are appropriate to apologize to, and then kind of like maintain that, that cycle. And then, you know, once you get um, beyond or beyond, once you get through your 12 steps and really have a good amount of recovery time, you can start sponsoring others. And that's really one of the foundations of the program is service back to others. But again, you can't serve anyone if if you're a mess, mm-hmm. right? So it's like clean your side of the street, and then you can start serving others. And I'm I'm like I'm intensely cautious about getting too involved with other addicts from the standpoint of letting their experience and their struggles pull me back in. You got and some work to do still probably. Exactly, exactly. And I, I had dinner last night with a, a friend of mine who has uh, relapsed twice, but I was able to tell him, I'm like, no offense, man, like when you disappear for two weeks on on your relapse, like I just kind of have to let you go. And I told him, I, I said, I looked in the obituaries for you and I was very worried and... um you know, I'm just intensely grateful. Like, I love this guy so much. And to be sitting across from him at dinner last night, like, did feel like I was with someone that I had accepted and thought was was dead. Mm-hmm. But I can't let their struggles pull me, pull me down. Otherwise, the people that I love and care for, they're not going to get the best version of me that makes their life even better. Crazy. Yeah. Have you got to the step yet where you've had a go make amends to people that's where i'm at right now so <laughs> i gotta be hard yeah um and the interesting thing about like as as you're writing out um where your resentments live like i don't have a great memory but i'm remembering back to like oh bully like this guy picked on me in high school and um you know i kind of always held it a- against him and then you're writing it you're you're going through and and the key people in the life, the pe- in your life, the people that you say you care the most about, like they're going to appear multiple times on your resentment list. Um, and then, yeah, for, for amends, it's, you know, that's, that's the step that I haven't gotten into, but I've thought about a lot and it's just like, I don't, I don't know how this is going to play into it. Like, do I just send them this and go like, sorry, that's not, that's not what I'm going to do. But, uh, but yeah, it is a, it's a, 
one thing that we're learning through this process with our little girl is like when you rehash and, and tell a story, it's like you're pretty exhausted yeah. by it. And and so like we would get done with a day of of doctor visits and then um it's like, well, we gotta call my parents. We gotta call your parents, and then we got to send the siblings a text, and oh, we got extended. And by the end of the day, we're like just totally wiped out. Um, it's a little bit like that with thinking about like saying I'm sorry to people because it's like, man, I screwed up this guy and and that guy. But like a good example is I had a call with um, one of my best friends. He was in my wedding, our wedding, um, and uh, I haven't talked to him in a in a long time, and we were in intensely close in college. We went to school together all the way it starting in elementary school, but really formed a bond in college. Um, and I'd lost touch with him. And so I reached out and, uh, we FaceTimed and I was telling him my story. And for him, I had to, I, I apologized to him, not for like any specific action that I had taken. Well, drunk, but for the fact that he was one of the first people to call me on, on my BS and I blew him off Mm -hmm. for it. And so I, you know, in, in that case, it's like, it wasn't, I'm sorry for being a drunk. It was, I am sorry that I pushed you away when you were showing me the truth. Trying to help. Yeah. And so I, I don't know if that's what like all of the amends are going to look like. You know, I obviously have an intense amount of work to do with family. Like I am so lucky and so blessed at what I have not lost in my life. Um, my relationship with my family has grown extremely strong. There's still a lack of trust that needs to be like really highlighted about coming out of rehab because you go through this 28 day really intense process where you're communicating with the outside world 15 minutes a day hardly at all your yeah. day call it your day 30 your day 30 is everyone else's day 0 and that feel in that moment that feels like a massive gap and so basically you come out and you're like oh crap nobody trusts me that causes people to relapse that, that fact alone, where it's like, well, I just did these 28 days. Why, why don't you trust me anymore? Uh, It's that out of sight, out of mind. Exactly. And so it's, um, that, that throws people for a, a really big loop. And, and so like we, we discovered that, um, me and a buddy in, in rehab, uh, he's still actively in recovery, like doing really well. But he and I talked a lot about we we called it our day thirty, um, because like we just wanted to keep each other aware, like our significant others, our family members. There's going to be a loss of trust, um, and I experienced that with my younger sister. She she and I are really close, and uh, I got out of rehab, and again, pink cloud, like I'm feeling great. I'm aware that I have I have trust to build up, and and like you know, action to prove, um, that this is going to stick. And, uh, I can kind of tell in calls that my sister's like a little bit distant and, and whatnot. And finally she texts me one day and go, can we, can we connect? Can we talk? And I'm like, yep, definitely want to. And I, I had an idea uh, that this was, she's really good at calling 
my bullshit. <laughs> and she's done that her whole life. And, uh, and so, um, her and I connected and she told me, she's like, I'm really nervous for you knowing that another, and this was before we knew about all the genetic issues, but she said, I'm nervous for you knowing that another baby is on the way and all the stress that brings. She had two kids. Um, mm -hmm. and so she's like, I just know it. And like, I don't see you. I don't know if I can trust like she didn't, she told me she didn't want to get too close if this was going to hurt again. Cause I've hurt that relationship really bad. And so we talked for like an hour, an hour and a half. And, uh, you know, by the, by the end of it. And I, I just kind of told her like the big thing in that conversation was like, the thing that's different now is like, God is at the foundation of this. And that wasn't the case mm -hmm. before. And just in, in talking through that and like seeing that I have had this major mindset shift that, that isn't manageable for seven to 21 days. Like this, this feels like a new me. And she was just like, I can't believe this. I'm so happy to hear that. And I didn't get, I didn't get her trust back in that call and I didn't want to or expect to get her trust back yeah, in that call. It takes time. But all, our our bonds grew like even even tighter and even closer. Um and so I'm just like my my in-laws, um my immediate family, my extended family. I've chosen to open up on on this and everyone has shown grace and support. And it's, it's humbling because they don't, they don't have to. I know addicts who have to lose everything, literally car, job, family. It can be all gone if, if you want mm -hmm. your life too. There's a filtering effect to being an addict. Like not all of them make it to this point because you're dealing with toxins. You're, you, you know, and, and so a, a ton die. And like, I'm not willing to give those things up. I'm not willing to lose any of that. And just the amount of growth and improvement in relationships, improvement in my own mentality and my, my own like love for myself. Like I'm able to laugh at myself more in like a, a positive way and just be comfortable with mistakes that I make and be like, yeah, well, that's all right. I'm still worth a guy <laughs> worth loving. Um, I was, I was physically abusive with myself. Um, I, uh, I usually opted for the open hand slap across the face because the couple times that I closed my fist, I did give myself a black eye. Jeez. And, uh, and then um, my career profession is being on video calls. And <laughs> so then it's like, yeah, I took a knee um, in the jujitsu gym. Uh, you know, should be gone. Yeah, it was, a, it was a bummer. It's like, no, I was in the freaking kitchen losing my mind. And I slugged myself in the face. Jeez. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> How has the process been of re rebuilding the relationship with your son? How is that going? Uh, so. Is he three now? He's, he's just over two. And, um, yeah, I, uh, 
he knew I was gone when I was at rehab. Dad's on a trip. And getting to see him, you know, he's just like, just to, he's this like, okay. <laughs> Everyone's kids are wonderful. <laughs> and, uh, but man, my, my son is adorable, but he, uh, he truly is like a, I'm I, like, logically speaking, he's a perfectly average baby, like 50th percentile and everything. <laughs> um, but you know, getting to see him and uh, watching him walk through the doors of the courtyard at rehab and uh, realizing, like, he smiles when he sees me. Um, and then getting home and, uh, you know, that first morning, um, getting to go and wake him up, it's just like all of a sudden these moments that I took for granted or that were annoying to me beforehand are now these, these precious moments. And I, I, I think about it in this way, when I'm 80 years old, how much would I pay to be right here right now? And man, with a two-year-old, that's a lot of money because <laughs> they are so cute. So funny. So, oh my God. His sarcasm is just crazy. And he doesn't stop talking. I, I watch him for two hours, um, just me and him, every single night. We've started cooking together, so I sit him on the countertop, um, and, you know, he holds potatoes. I cut potatoes, and we, like, get all the, the meat ready and stuff like that. He's my little helper in the kitchen. Um, we listen to the Lion King soundtrack, like, <laughs> on repeat. Oh, my God. And, uh, like those, those things where it's like, geez, man, I don't want to hear be prepared again. <laughs> I take a moment and I'm like, yeah, but how much is this moment right here worth? And yeah. it's like, okay. And so I've been able to bring a new energy and focus in and like the thing I would describe about my periods of sobriety when it came to my son was just how intensely irritable I was, you know, kids, you don't get sleep with kids. And when you stack on top of that, you're detoxing um, and you haven't slept in a few days, just the short fuse is like just so quick. Oh man. And my uh, patience has almost gotten to an annoying status where I can like <laughs> recognize how patient I'm being. And I'm like, man, shouldn't I like, kind of be getting on him. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so like the the play and the engagement that my son and I have has just fully transformed. And like I, I've taken a, a perspective on being a father that like I have this responsibility, um, one of many, but like a key responsibility is like help him understand boundaries. And that is both in the physical and, and emotional sense. So it's like we, um, you know, if like I, I like roughhousing with my son. Like I think it's a, a ton of fun. And, you know, as long as he's laughing, it's like things are good. But I like him pushing himself physically in that manner and, and be like, you know, it's it's enjoyable to do that. But then, you know, that's like constrained to the rug then when we're at dinner the dinner table, there's like a different set of boundaries and behavior. Yeah. And uh, 
I didn't have the mental capacity and creativity to even think that way before. I was just surviving. And so now it's like I get to challenge and think about how to become a better father and just be so much more present that, um, you know, I left yesterday. So I drove from Boise to Idaho Falls. And I told my wife, I'm like, hey, I'm going to leave when Grant's down for uh, um, his nap. I really want to put him down for a nap. And so she kept him up a little later to work within my work schedule. And I go and read him a story. Um, and like he puts his his uh, stuffed animals away, puts the book away, comes back up to me. And we sit there and we we say prayers, um, just blessing everyone in our in our lives. And then it's usually, okay, a, a kiss and then lay down to sleep. And all of a sudden I realize I'm like, hmm, he's clinging a little harder right now. <sighs> and I could hear, I could feel him breathing kind of fast. He knew you were leaving. He knew I was leaving. And so like he and I sat there and we talked and, you know, he's kind of pouting and, and I'm just like, man, you, you never would have gotten here. Mm-hmm. And, and he fought, we, we, we were in there like 20 minutes with him, just like, what's going on? And um, my wife finally left, like she came up to help and then she leaves. Um, and then I'm I'm there just talking to him. And he was hilarious because at one point he goes, Dad, I want to go bear hunting. <laughs> I'm like, bear hunting? We haven't even talked about bear hunting. <laughs> like, what? where did this come from? And uh, all of a sudden, I, I don't know what I said or what I did, but he just laid down. And I put the blanket over him and I walked out. I got downstairs and, and my wife's like, I don't know what fairy dust he sprinkled there, but that was amazing to watch because she's watching on the camera. And it's like, I never would have gotten there. I would have I would have thrown the towel in and just yeah. had my wife, my <laughs> wife who is pregnant, a high-risk pregnancy dealing with a lot of stress and strain on her body, I would have been like, you go take care of it. Mm-hmm. And in this instance, it's like, no, I'm able to hang out. So like he would, you know, it warms my heart that he has a hard time when I leave a little bit. And then I'm, I'm not even to the interstate in Boise and my wife um, texts me and she goes, there's something going on with you and Grant. Like a minute after you walked out the door, he woke up screaming for you. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, I don't, that like, makes me sad to hear but like yeah there there is that we have we have an unbelievable connection right yeah. now um and it's it's beautiful and i know like one thing about parenting that i've come to learn is like parenting is really about ultimately letting them go and and being contributing met like they're going to leave at some point it's going to happen fast. Yeah. And and so just like my hope is just that I can do the very best that I can to set him up. When I was going into rehab, I spent about 20 minutes on my knees with Grant while he was playing around. And my dad was there at this time. And it was just us three. And I was just like, I don't want him to ever have to deal with this. I don't want him to ever have to go through this. And I had a counselor say something to me that really was impactful. She said, you need to give your son the choice to be an alcoholic. 
I'm like, what do you mean by that? Like, that didn't make sense. And she said, well, if you continue down this road and you just show him how to be an alcoholic and he has the genetic makeup for it. And the trauma from it. That's all he's going to do. And that's all he's going to know. Whereas if he grows up not even connecting with or understanding that like dad drank. Yeah. Dad never drinks. You know, he, he then has the choice. Like I'm not ever going to be disappointed. My, my prayer is that he's a normie like his mom (laughs) and can handle his alcohol. Like that, that is my hope for him, but that might, that might not be the case. So then what I can control is show him the best example of a life that, you know, proves that you can, you can live with it. I'm, I'm an addict. I'm never, I'm never going to move outside of that definition. I am an addict, but I'm, I'm comfortable with that. And I'm accepting that that's always going to be there in my Mm -hmm. life. Um, and, and, you know, I hope to be proof to him that like, you can, you can live a wonderful, meaningful life as, as an addict. So it doesn't, it doesn't have to be this crutch. Um, it doesn't have to be like the defining characteristic, like it can lead to the defining characteristics of who you are. Um, but it's a part of me, but it's not the part of me. Mm-hmm. You can be an active recovery. Yeah, absolutely. Man, what a crazy story since <laughs> I saw you last time. I know a lot's <laughs> happened in nine months. That's insane. Yeah. And I just, I just want to say like you guys, so I did, I got into the kettlebell program like two weeks before the end of my drinking. And uh, like I went into rehab and we had to set goals every single morning, two goals. One of my goals every single day, exercise. And uh, they just had this tiny little gym like here to the wall and uh, a rowing machine. I I don't think I can ever do a rowing machine again (laughs) in my life. And so it's like, okay, that's what you have to deal with. And, uh, I don't know, like I was able to get like creative and, you know, with, with a lot of like the stuff I, I learned in the kettlebell program, I'm like, okay, lunges, like if you do enough, even without weights, you start to suck a lot <laughs> and burpees, holy crap. And, yeah. uh, we got to a point we call, um, we did something, uh, once a week, the last two weeks. Um, and we called it the, the prison card workout or the deck of card workout. I'm sorry. And, uh, what, what it was, was we would uh, take a full deck of cards and have someone flip a card for us. They'd shuffle it, then flip. Hearts were squats. Diamonds were lunges. Uh, clubs were uh, bear crawls. Like you start standing up, you bend down, touch your toes, walk your hands out, do a push-up, walk walk back, stand up. That's one. I don't know if you guys call them bear claws, but yeah, bear crawls, but... That was clubs and then spades were burpees and we would do the whole deck of cards. And then ACE was 15, not 14. So I think it was like 135 reps of everything. Oh. And uh yeah, I was getting into summer in Boise, and all they all they had was a small little patch of artificial grass. And so we uh we did it on there and we would just like rip our hands up because the heat of the sun was, but it was man, you talk about just like 
and, and every time I got through that workout and I, I think about it often is like, this is easier than alcoholism. <laughs> like I can do this. Like I can just keep doing this. Yeah. Um, so like, and then, so like fitness played a big part in my recovery just from like how I was feeling. I lost, I lost 20 pounds from the time that I went in, um, to like, I, I don't really weigh myself a whole lot anymore, but I kind of got curious uh, and I stepped on the scale and I'm like, Oh, something's wrong with the scale. And, uh, I found out like, no, I had just literally dropped that. All those extra calories. Yeah. It's, it was like in my, like I look back at pictures from the expo and I'm like, I have a chubby face. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it was, it was just, it was wild, but like fitness played in plays a, a key part in my recovery. Now the difference is if I miss a workout, I don't go F it. I'm going to get a drink. Or if I have a good workout, I go, I don't go. I deserve celebrate. That. Yeah. I celebrate with a pint of ice cream now. <laughs> um, Talenti needs to like give me some stock or something like that. Sponsorship. Oh my God. <laughs> but uh yeah, so it's just like, you know, find find your your uh your different outlets and and things like that. And like don't let those highs and lows like carry you off um like I used to. But yeah, like fitness is just like so it's such a key part in this. And again, back to the, like, can you be 0.01% better? Like for some people that means get off the couch and go for a walk today. Like just start, do something. Yeah. Um, and that was the, in, in this dinky little gym, they had a small whiteboard and, uh, I decided to write something on there before I left. And I think it, this might be controversial, but I think it applies to a lot of what you see with relapse in the recovery space. And I just wrote, stop making excuses, just do something. And I, you know, I think about that a lot. Like I don't really look for or make many excuses anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, when it, like if I screw up, it's like, okay, what's the next best thing that I can do? That's another concept in recovery is like, just do the next best thing. You know, one step after the next. Yeah. Don't, don't get too tripped up on the future. Don't, don't get looking too far ahead. But, um, yeah, this man, I just, 2023 is such a wild year for us in so, in so many ways, just the absolute pit, the darkest times, um, the heaviest burdens, but also like genuinely the most amazing and beautiful experiences at the same time. Suffering is weird like that. It is. Yeah. Where the, the worst trips are the best trips. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that is, so that's like, it's kind of another reason I wanted, I wanted to talk here. Like one of the things I'm fearful of is like, and this would happen when I was white knuckling it is you get 21 days out from drinking. You have a, you have a few good runs, uh, weeks of, of working out and feeling good. I told you, I didn't have a good memory. I would, I would forget about how crappy I felt in the mornings while I was drinking everything. And so I would go, you know what? I'm okay. Introducing it again. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's a part of suffering where like you forget some of, of the pain. And so like, I want to, I want to continue for me, my continued reminder is, is attending 
my AA meetings, talking to people about it. And just kind of like, even when I'm driving alone, like this might sound weird, but it's like glance over at the passenger seat, be like, no, there's always an addict. Yeah. Right. Right there. And right, right with you. And it's okay. Thanks so, so much for sharing that story, man. Yeah. That takes a lot of courage. Yeah. It's been, uh, is it, I, you know, I don't, I don't know who's going to listen to this that I've opened up to in the past, but, um, I mentioned this a little bit, the love that I've been shown from colleagues, from friends, like I don't generally speaking, I don't have coworkers. Like I, I do have supporters and I have friends that yeah. I happen to work with. That's awesome. Yeah. And and so that, I mean, you spend so much of your time, you know, thinking about doing your work. And I didn't think I would have that support before I went to rehab. But like my boss specifically has been incredible. And he says something that I think sums it up really well, because as we've shared this story, people are like, I don't know what to say. And that is perfectly understandable and fine. And one thing that my boss has said that I think is just absolutely true is I can sympathize, but I can't empathize. And it's like, that's, that's good. I think that's, that's the best way to, to say it. Like, at least from my end receiving it, it's like, I appreciate that so much. Like, no, if, if he would be like, ah, man, I, I totally empathize. It's like, no, you don't. You don't yeah. know what I'm going through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> really helpful. To have his support and, you know, his, I'm not looking for his sympathy at all, but, but to know like I'm in his thoughts and, and, uh, it just, it means a lot. There's, uh, there's something to be said about, you know, surrounding yourself with people that you care and, and love about and uh, love a lot. And, um, yeah, the uh, it's just like it's it's such a greater power mm-hmm. than the sum of the parts. So in in closing, we are bumping up against mm-hmm. a time parameter, but closing thoughts on just what you would say to people struggling out there with alcoholism. Yeah, um, start with and focus on yourself. Do it for you. Um, when I was white knuckling, I was doing it for my wife. Uh, I love her intensely. Um, that wasn't enough. And and this is a crazy thing. Like if you're, if you're doing recovery, if you're doing sobriety for someone else, at some point they're going to piss you off or, Mm. or do something that causes a, a slight, even a slight resentment against them you know it's an easy way to lash back go and get hammered Mm -hmm. and so you can't i don't believe i can support my own recovery by doing it for anyone other than myself and i think in my story my struggle was accepting of who i was and loving myself so Start in the mirror and try to, at least, if you have that seed of a thought, 
try to verbalize it. If looking in the mirror is too hard, because I know how difficult it can be to make eye contact with yourself. If looking in the mirror is too hard, go to a room and just say it out loud and try to try to hear it. If that's too hard, shut the lights off so it's completely dark. I mean, just do do anything you can to make it as easy as possible to say that you might that you have a problem. You know, whether it's addiction or some other problem in my life, I fumbled the words my name is Kyle. I'm an alcoholic for multiple days when I first started saying it. Yeah. It would get caught in my throat. But they made you repeat it every single time you started group. I'm Kyle. My sober date is 514. My drug of choice is alcohol. You get into the rooms of AA. I'm Kyle. I'm an alcoholic. It it becomes less burdensome to say that. <laughs> but you have to start somewhere. So make it as easy as possible to just say it out loud. Because I've had the thought in my mind for more than 12 years that I had a problem with alcohol. It was not until I started saying it out loud that things started to change for me. And know that even though you're focused on yourself and your recovery has to be for you, you're not alone. At the very least, you have God. You have a higher power. There is a plan for all of this. The world sucks in a lot of senses, and the world is absolutely full of suffering. But how you bear your cross and your burdens is the opportunity of your lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so do it well. Like That is all I'm focused on. I only desire to be the hero of my story. And... You know, right now my story primarily impacts my my wife and my kid. And that's all I'm focused on. But it starts it starts with me. That's amazing, man. Well, we are sure proud of you and Thank love you. you. And I know this story is gonna impact a lot of people in a in a positive way. And thanks for the courage it took to lay yeah. that all out there. It's been it's been a journey to be able to uh get comfortable. And like seriously, the uh anxiety thing like i would have been a hot mess if i had to sit here before and try to do this like again the mic and the cameras and it's like oh there's some guy named eric that i don't really know but he's from minnesota so he's a good guy and like i would have just been totally sweat through this and it's it's like it's amazing what can what can transform um can i do i actually have time to do a, a final Quick reading. Let's do it. It's like a paragraph long. Yeah. Um, this is from this is from like the Alcoholics Anonymous book. Um Yeah, let's close with that. That'll be yeah. perfect. So it's it's something called the promise. Um, and it's read in every meeting, but I think it's a good way to close. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, 
we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Man. That's really profound. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Kyle. Thank Lo you, Dustin. Love you, man. Love you. Means a lot. <laughs> <laughs>